and we're here this morning to discuss a common addiction that most of us share. It's an acute and chronic craving for ice cream that's beloved most in the human race, it, ice cream. It's an addiction that I don't know if we can be cured of, but it's something that we can learn to live with. And who better to give us guidelines on how to cope than the woman who literally wrote the book on the subject, or at least a fine book on the subject. Uh, and the book is titled, Hello, My Name is Ice Cream, The Art and Science of the Scoop by Dana Cree. I'll tell you just a little bit about Dana. She's the executive pastry chef of the Publican Restaurants in Chicago. Um, and uh, she was a two-time finalist for the James Beard Award for the best pastry chef for her work at the acclaimed Blackbird. Has a few other things, like she worked at Spago in, in California, at Alinea, not, not too shabby. And she's a graduate of Penn State University's Ice Cream Short Course, otherwise known as Ice Cream College. And uh, anyway, Dana is, is going to um, give us the real skinny on ice cream. So I don't think I need to say much more. Uh, we, we've got, again, a real scoop for you on ice cream. And there will be samples that Dana will give you. And she's going to show you how you, too, can do this at home and make magic at home with your ice cream. And Dana, take, take it away. Uh, I'm used to hiding in the kitchen, so I'll be on this side. Hi, how is everyone today? Is it too early for ice cream yet? No. Okay. That's what I thought. It's never too early for ice cream. He gave me a pretty good introduction. My name is Dana. I work at the Publican. I make a lot of ice cream, and I think about ice cream a lot. Um, a lot more since I wrote this book. Who here has made ice cream at home before? It's a good number, so... I'm guessing you guys have ice cream machines. Home ice cream has been something that I have gotten more questions about than anything else that I make in a restaurant. Um, a restaurant pastry chef is a very special type of pastry chef. In the world, there are bread bakers that own bread shops. There are chocolatiers who own chocolate shops. There are people who own shops that only make macaroons, uh, cookie shops, cake shops, uh, little bakeries that do a few of those things, ice, people who make ice cream all day. And then there are restaurant pastry chefs who have to dabble in everything to bring all of those different disciplines together uh, to put on a plate to create a composed dessert to finish your meal within a restaurant. I have grown up in my pastry career being a jack of all trades, uh, and a master of one. Every pastry chef in a restaurant, while we dabble in every discipline, um, everybody has sort of their rabbit hole that they like to fall down, and the one thing that interests them more than anything, and for me, that's always been ice cream. When I was in culinary school, way back in 2000, uh, in Seattle, I went to the Art Institute of Seattle. Um, I studied in their culinary program, and then followed up with the baking and pastry program. Of all the things that I did in the pastry program, ice cream was one of the things that really seemed like a magic trick. Marshmallows was the other. <laughs> I didn't even know that you could make marshmallows. I thought they were a miracle of manufacturing. <laughs> and I suppose I thought ice cream was also a miracle of manufacturing. Um, I didn't have any of those nice 
sort of bucolic memories of sitting on the back porch at my auntie's farm, hand churning ice cream in a bucket of salt and ice. Ice cream for me either came off of the ice cream truck or came in large tubs that we bought from the grocery store or occasionally we went to Baskin and Robbins. Um, There was no, I suppose, ice cream romance in my childhood, even though I was deeply in love with it from a very early age. So when I got to culinary school and they taught us how to stir cream and sugar and eggs and I saw vanilla bean for the first time um, to stir it over heat and then chill it down and put inside a machine and what came out the other end was ice cream. It was one of those transformations that I almost didn't believe was possible until I saw it. When I took my first pastry chef job, I worked at a very, very small farm-to-table wine bar in Seattle called Eva. Um, which I thought was a sign from the pastry gods because my grandma's name was Eva and she's the one who taught me how to cook. And I still believed in those things when I was that young. (laughs) We didn't have a fancy ice cream maker. I had three Cuisinart countertop models where I froze the bowl. It's the same model that I recommend for home cooks for the biggest bang for your buck. Picked up every single ice cream book I could get my hands on. And that was sort of my first dive into falling in love with being an ice cream maker rather than an ice cream eater. Um, Half of it was the reaction I got from people when you gave them ice cream. People get extremely excited when there's extra Rocky Road in the freezer. (laughs) That sort of positive reinforcement really um, encouraged me to continue to love that discipline. So I spent a few years making ice cream in the same kind of ice cream makers we make at home and then reading books by David Leibowitz and um, other pastry chefs like Emily Lucchetti came out with an ice cream book at the time. I learned that there was more than just the egg-enriched French-style ice cream. There was a second-style ice cream called Philadelphia ice cream that is so common in the United States, we only know it as ice cream. Um, 99% of the ice cream we eat in ice cream shops is Philadelphia-style, which means it's made without eggs. Um, People have asked me why the Americans made ice cream without eggs and the French made ice cream with eggs, and I I really don't know the answer. Um, I think that ice ice cream's rise to um, common popular status came about after America had uh, staked its independence. It really became a way for dairy farmers to add value to milk Um, on their farms, which was a very plentiful product for them. And I imagine that it's easier to make ice cream without eggs if you don't have to go visit the chicken farmer. And you can just use what you have on hand. And either way, um, I'm not sure why, but I'm sure I'm happy they did because it's a second delicious way to make your ice cream at home. Has anybody here made the French-style ice cream where you thicken it with yolks? And then have you made the second style where you just use cream and sugar and milk? So most of you are familiar with the two styles, whether you knew the name or not. Within this book, I broke the chapters down into four different styles of ice cream. So there's an entire chapter on custard-style ice creams in which we enrich them with egg yolks and thicken them. There's a chapter on the Philadelphia style, which is um, just dairy-forward. Then there's a chapter on sherbets, which I feel like are kind of a lost art in ice cream making. Um, I grew up eating sherbet in the flavor of orange and rainbow. And 
uh, somewhere along the lines, that disappeared from my ice cream eating life. I, of course, scan the ice cream section every time I go to the grocery store just out of curiosity to see if there's anything new. There never is. (laughs) And the sherbets are still there, but they're tucked way up high in big plastic buckets um, with commodity prices on them. And it's really unfortunate because a sherbet is, for me, the best way to express fruit flavor in an ice cream. Um, There are very few legal definitions around sherbet. The only real definition of it is that it has to contain no less than 2% butterfat and no more than 4% butterfat, whereas ice cream has to contain no less than 10% butterfat in order to be labeled as ice cream, Um, which is another reason why we used to see something called ice milk on the shelves, um, which has lost popularity and has stopped being manufactured, but that was ice cream with a butterfat content of under 10%. Uh, So it was less expensive. I think in the 80s maybe considered healthier, although I'm not sure what people's position on fats and health are these days. And I also um, am speculating that it lost popularity to the low-fat frozen yogurts that are more popular these days. When I set out to make a chapter on sherbets and when I set out to introduce sherbets to my um, recipes in the professional kitchen, I had very, very little information to go on and recipes that I could find in my research Um, almost had nothing in common with each other. Some of them had egg egg whites in them. Some of them were just really creamy sorbets. Um, So I I made up my own definition, (laughs) which is after I went to uh, ice cream college, I found out is fairly in line with what the industry standard is, which is uh, just a very slim margin of butterfat and a lot of fruit. So whereas fruit is often... Um, of sort of a very subtle flavor when you get fruit-flavored ice creams. Like imagine a strawberry ice cream and then imagine a strawberry sorbet. Um, For me, a sherbet is halfway between those two. So very, very fruit-forward and just enriched with a little bit of dairy. And then I like to put a lot of buttermilk in it for tang. And uh, I think they're they're quite nice. So that's where you'll find my strawberry ice cream in the book. Um, And then the... Fourth chapter in the book is frozen yogurts, and these are not the low-fat frozen yogurts um, that we uh, squeeze out of machines and uh, put candy on top of and pay for by the pound. Um, This is not TCBY. These are um, full-fat ice creams that are made with the flavor of yogurt. Um, I like to make them at home. I get criticized when I call myself a lazy home cook um, (laughs) because I'm certainly not lazy, but I don't like to make a lot of dishes. I don't like three-day projects at home. Um, I get enough of those at work. So frozen yogurts are kind of my go-to at home because you make a thick, I call it a dairy goo. Um, You cook a syrup with cream and milk and sugar and whatever flavor you're going to add, and then you whisk in Greek yogurt, and you're ready to go. Um, So for instant gratification at home, I think frozen yogurts are the way to go. And the reason I broke everything up into four chapters, aside from um, being told I have a very compartmentalized brain, is as a restaurant pastry chef, remember I said we, we have to bring together all these different disciplines to create a composition on a plate. Um, when we're trying to best express the flavor profile we've chosen, we will go through each of these different styles of ice cream and say, well, we want to add chicory root to this dish, 
let's try it as an ice cream. Do we make it a custard? Is the eggy flavor and the richness of it going to best express that flavor in this composition? Is it a frozen yogurt? Is it a sherbet? Chicory's probably not a sherbet. Um, is it a Philadelphia-style ice cream? And because of that, because I've spent so much time using the different disciplines to express flavors differently, um, I've sort of come to have favorite flavors within each discipline. So while you can use all of them interchangeably, well, maybe the sherbets have to have fruit in them, <laughs> but you can use the Philadelphia and the custard um, interchangeably to express flavor. I have found that I like the richer custard flavors more for deep spices, brown sugars. Um, I think I say in the book, flavors you want to cozy up to and spend a while with. That's where you'll find my vanilla bean ice cream. Um, and then the Philadelphia style ice creams are fresher, um, a little bit cleaner, more dairy forward. So that's where you'll find a goat cheese ice cream. So um, dairy forward flavors, that's where you'll find fresh herbs. Um, it's where I put chocolate. Um, because I really want the nuances of chocolate to come forward. And we're going to taste the chocolate ice cream today. It's one of my favorite chocolate ice creams in that I, chocolate was my first flavor that I would choose when I went to Baskin and Robbins as a child. Um, they had a flavor called chocolate fudge. And um, my sisters would spend most of their time trying to choose a new flavor each time. And I, I knew what I wanted. So I would just stand there and um, covet the little ice cream cakes with um, ice cream cones as turrets to make it a castle. So I would stare at those while they chose whatever they wanted. The reason I liked it is because unlike the regular chocolate, this was so chocolatey in my memory. Um, and it had little chunks of chocolate fudge in it. Um, so I have been a diehard chocolate fan since I was old enough to remember. So I have tried making chocolate ice cream every which way. Um, I have tried every chocolate I can get my hands on in ice cream. and. My sister lives in Germany, so I spend a lot of time eating ice cream in Europe as well. Um, I know, poor me. And one of the things I realized is that in America, we favor a cocoa powder ice cream for chocolate. So it's very fudgy. Uh, in Europe, they use melted chocolate. Um, and I like both, but what I did with the ice cream in this book is we use a little bit of milk chocolate for richness, a little bit of dark chocolate for depth, and a little bit of cocoa powder for fudginess. Um, so the flavor is really sort of like in the Bermuda Triangle of chocolates. And for me, it's, uh, it's kind of perfectly centered. Um, it's not the darkest chocolate ice cream you'll find, it's not the creamiest chocolate ice cream you'll find, and it's not the fudgiest, but um, it embodies all three of those things, which to me is like the perfect everyday chocolate ice cream. And what I really love about this ice cream is because you use three different chocolates, um, your chocolate ice cream and your chocolate ice cream and your chocolate ice cream are all going to be different. Um, and they can be different from batch to batch depending on the different chocolates that you choose, um, which excites me to no end. Uh, the chocolates that I use are made by a company called Coco Berry. Um, they have an office in Chicago. It is occasionally available to the public. This is one of the mysteries in my life is why the chocolate that I buy as a professional and the chocolate I buy as a home cook are not the same things. I don't know why they don't sell it to me in the grocery store because I would buy it. <laughs> I think everybody else would as well because it's so good. Some of the chocolate brands that I enjoy a great deal, uh, one of them is called Valrona and occasionally um, you can find it in Trader Joe's. They have some small Valrona bars. Um, but on the flip side, the 
some of the um, very nice chocolates that are available to me as a consumer are not available to me as a professional, A, because they're priced too high, and B, because they only come in four-ounce bars. And when I make recipes, we're making 22 gallons of ice cream at a time. And it would look like Willy Wonka's factory or uh, I guess Veruca Salt's factory when they were unwrapping all of those chocolate bars to find her golden ticket uh, if I tried to do that. And I think my bosses would strangle me if I spent that much on chocolate. <laughs> That's sort of how the four chapters in the book are laid out. Um, the opening of each chapter has a blank slate recipe, which is a template for the reader to use to invent their own ice creams. Um, one of the things I hope happens with this book is people not only follow the recipes that I made, but take them and turn them into their ice creams. Like there's only room for 40 or 50 flavors of ice cream in this book, uh, which is, I just think, half of 1% of the ice creams that should exist in this world. And I'm leaving it up to the rest of you to invent them. So with the blank slate template, um, rather than having to pick an ice cream, remove flavor, add flavor back, uh, this gives you the opportunity to start tinkering with flavor on your own. There's a section in the back called Composed Scoops. Now, I came of age in the era of Ben and Jerry's. So as Ben and Jerry progressed, their ice creams got even more chock full of add-ins, and I got even more delighted with each one. I love a scoop of perfectly smooth ice cream, but I also love a scoop with chunks and chews and bits and bobs and ribbons and ripples and crunches and nuts in it as well. I worked at Blackbird. I started packing pints of ice cream. Um, it was just sort of a fun project for me. Put Hello, My Name is stickers on them, which is uh, it's just something that I found that was not a brand, but a way to tie all the ice cream together. Um, they were colorful and fun, which is sort of how the name of this was born. We started by thinking we would put whatever we were making for the menu in pints and sell it at Public and Quality Meats. Um, turns out people don't want to buy pints of masa ice cream or burnt artichoke ice cream or even orange and cumin ice cream. They may work very, very well in a avant-garde composition, but the kinds of ice creams we want to scoop out of a pint and eat in our homes are not the same, um, which is really where my dive into add-ins started. Um, rather than putting the ice cream on the dessert, I started to figure out how to put the dessert in the ice cream. Um, so the composed scoop section are scoops that I have composed in a way that is similar to the way I would compose a dessert. Um, some of them are very familiar. Some of them are twists on classics. There's cookies, cookies, and cream, uh, which is vanilla ice cream with what I think is the best chocolate wafer in the entire world. Um, I can't take credit for it. I um, have been using the same recipe since my very first kitchen. I got it out of Dory Greenspan's book. Um, it is Pierre Hermé's Corova cookie. It's a chocolate shortbread with brown sugar in it, and it is the most addictive chocolate cookie I've ever had in my life. So naturally, when I wanted a chocolate wafer for cookies and cream, I started chopping that up and putting it in there. Um, and then we put some of the cookie dough in there as well. So cookies, cookies, and cream, um, which I think sounds like the kind of lawyer's office I want to go to. Then there are completely composed scoops based off of desserts I've done or just for having fun. Um, there's one called Kids Play, and it is a goat cheese ice cream with... Um, a ribbon of plum jam and 
little chunks of marzipan cake, um, which is very delicious. I recommend it in plum season, highly, especially if you have a plum tree and you don't know what to do with all of your plums. Um, and again, the hope is, yes, you can follow my recipes, um, but there is an entire section of add-ins that are designed to be the perfect texture when frozen, um, rather than just chopping up recipes from desserts and throwing them in there. We reformulated everything, we, I, um, me and my in internal team, uh, reformulated everything to be the right texture when it's frozen. Um, so a lot of these will work as toppings as well, but a lot of their texture doesn't really come into shape until it's frozen. And one of the key points is the chocolate chunk. Now, one of my biggest pet peeves when I eat ice cream with chocolate chunks in it is when it gets waxy and I have to chew on it for a really long time and I've swallowed all the ice cream and there's this big blob of unmelted chocolate in my mouth that I have to work on for a while and eventually it starts to melt and then I can taste it and then I swallow it. Um, so chocolate has a very unique fat structure that can be recrystallized, it's called tempering, um, so that it is, uh, has a very high melting point. So it doesn't melt until it is at uh, 80, between 80 and 90 degrees. Now ice cream is below, it's, uh, we eat it at around five degrees. So you can imagine how long it takes your mouth that has been cooled by ice cream to warm chocolate back up until it can melt. And we can't really taste it until it melts. So what we've done is melted the chocolate ice cream, or <laughs> melted the chocolate, uh, which pulls it out of temper and uh, gives it a, a cr fat structure with a lower melt point. And then we've added an oil that has a very um, low melt point, so coconut oil. Um, and then you freeze that and chop it up. If you tried to serve these chocolate chunks at room temperature, they would be the texture of fudge. They would smear... Um, they will melt right in your hand if you, in fact, when you chop them up, your hands are going to get a little dirty. <laughs> uh, we can always tell which cook has had that task for the day <laughs> at the restaurant. Um, but the magic happens when you put it in, say, the mint chocolate chip ice cream, and you take a bite and those chocolate chunks start to melt in your mouth immediately. Uh, I think it's comparable to the chocolate ripple in Grater's ice creams. Again, my hope is really that people start mixing and matching recipes, um, taking, sort of taking the ice cream in their heads and turning it into a reality. Um, the entire book was really written to empower the reader, um, more so than showing you what I know. Uh, it's more about giving you what I know in a way that you can then take it and turn it into your own ice creams. Um, the very beginning of the book is, I think, one of the more unique parts in that it was the section I wanted to find when I started to get very curious about ice cream. Uh, when I took my second pastry chef job, third pastry chef job, I had graduated from the little countertop ice cream models to a real professional batch freezer. And then the third restaurant I was at was very modern. And they had a machine called a Paco Jet. Has anybody heard of a Paco Jet before? Yeah, it'll come up if you read the Alinea cookbook or... Um, see any of the videos on Chef's Table in some of the more contemporary restaurants, but this machine reverse engineers ice cream. So you put ice cream base in a little frozen canister, 
holds about a quart at a time, and then you freeze it, and then you put it, like you attach it to the machine, and it sends a blade down at microscopic levels that shave the ice crystals while injecting air into it. Now, the way ice cream churns, um, which you can read about in the section called The Process, is that it, um, it whips the air in as it creates and breaks down the ice crystals. So the PacoJet literally does it in reverse. Uh, and believe it or not, every single one of my ice creams failed miserably inside this machine. So I had to ask the question, why, why do all of my tried and true ice cream recipes fail? I mean, they were gross, buttery, separated, buttery, mostly buttery. Um, they didn't freeze right. I had the pleasure of meeting a gentleman named Chris Young who uh, worked at the, in the lab at the Fat Duck when I did my internship there. And uh, we both happened to be from Seattle. So when I left the Fat Duck and took a job at a wine bar, he came back to Seattle and took a job writing a book called Modernist Cuisine. So I text, or emailed him and said, why don't my ice creams work? And he kind of laughed at me <laughs> and said, well, I can tell you, but you're about to open the biggest can of worms you're ever going to see. And I was like, oh, yeah, sure. It took me 10 years to find the bottom of that can. <laughs> the reason it took so long is I had, luckily I had people like him that I could question, start using this brand new tool we had in the kitchen called Google. Um, and I purchased a couple professional manuals and then I bought all the ice cream books I could, but there really wasn't one comprehensive source where I could go for all of the information that I wanted. Um, industrial manuals talk to you in esters and weights of whey per ounce and some of the stuff really was way over my head. I had to go back and um, relearn my high school chemistry vocabulary, which I had gladly forgotten. <laughs> so after, I would say, 10 years, I decided to put it all in this book, which was the hardest sell to the editors when I wanted to write the book. I wanted to write the book I wanted to find, and I wanted to sort of bridge the gap between ice cream books that dumbed the information down so much that they would say, use corn syrup, it makes your ice cream less icy. Because when I see that, I'm like, okay, yes, I'll do that, but why? And how much is too much? And how much is not enough? And if it's corn syrup, can it be honey? And then how do I use that in a recipe? I would then go find all that information, but I saved you guys the trouble. <laughs> and then there are other professional manuals that are written so far over my head that they, it felt like they were telling me they knew the information and then saying, yeah, I've got the information, don't worry about it, just do what I say. Um, and then some of them were just written for people with jobs far more important than mine who spend all day making ice cream in factories. I wrote the first section called The Knowledge and luckily my editor at Clarkson Potter is named Francis Lamb and he has been a friend for years and um, I don't think I could have written this book without him because he was the first person to say, like, yes, just lay it all out. That's what you have now. It's a section called The Knowledge. Uh, it goes through what is ice cream. I mean, this was one of the first things that really blew my mind because I never really thought about what ice cream is. It's, it's a ball of creamy goodness that sits on top of my cone that comes in lots of flavors that I love eating. When you break it down, ice cream is really made of five components that all function together to create the texture we know and love. And that is ice, because it wouldn't be ice cream without ice. 
uh, and cream, so butter fat, wouldn't be ice cream without the cream, uh, protein uh, that comes to us from the milk and sometimes eggs, and sugar, which is more than just a sweetener. One of the very, very first things that I started to do when I wanted to make my own ice cream recipes was I started tinker with the sugar. Um, and instantaneously, my textures fell apart. Ice cream either got too soft or too hard or too brittle or it didn't taste quite right or it tasted the sweetness I wanted but the texture was chalky. Um, and I learned very quickly that sugar plays a very integral role in keeping some of the water fluid in our ice creams because without that, our ice creams would be popsicles. They would be very foamy popsicles, <laughs> which I have basically made by tinkering with the ice creams. And then there's a fifth component that is an invisible ingredient because we don't see it in the list in our recipes, but it's air. Um, again, ice cream wouldn't be ice cream, it would be a popsicle if we didn't whip air into it. There's a section called the five components of ice cream that describes what each of these things is, how it behaves in our recipes, how it comes together to create the texture, and what happens when these things are altered. Um, hopefully, one, one man who interviewed me said, even if he never makes a single recipe in this book, it completely changed the way he ate his next scoop of ice cream. Um, and change the way he appreciated why some ice creams that he bought from stores were better than others. Then the next section is called the process, and this is also something that was missing for me. Um, while recipes walked me through the steps, they didn't tell me what was happening inside my ice cream during each of these steps. So it starts with heating your ice cream base, um, what's happening at a molecular level, uh, the energy increases, the molecules start vibrating faster, um, proteins start to untangle, sugars, we, we think of sugar molecules and the smallest thing I can imagine is a granule of sugar. But a granule of sugar is a lot of sugar molecules all crystallized together. So the heating process, one of the biggest things that it does is break apart all of these sugar granules so that they can disperse into our ice cream uh, rather than sink to the bottom like a heavy syrup. And then there is the cool, once you heat it, then you just begin this chain reaction of cooling. Um, cooling the ice cream base, freezing the ice cream base, and then hardening the ice cream base. And all of the recipes in this book make American hard pack ice cream. Um, one of the biggest things that I found when I traveled through Europe was they really like their ice cream soft. Um, has, it, has anybody here eaten gelato? So it's a soft, it's meant to be spread on your cup or cone with a spatula. Um, it's churned and then it's never frozen overnight. It's uh, more akin to soft serve than it is ice cream. Well, I go to Europe on vacation and I delight in these soft, squishy ice creams. Uh, my sister rants every time about how much she misses the kind of ice cream you can bite uh, because she hasn't had that in years. Um, and it was then I sort of realized that that's what defined American ice cream. And I found the word American hard pack ice cream, which I love. And uh, that's what all of the scoops in this book are meant to make. So the entire recipes are formulated to be hardened. What that means is putting it in your freezer and walking away, which I know can be very hard to do. <laughs> and 
You are certainly welcome to eat your ice cream right out of the bowl in its soft, creamy, delicious form. But uh, there is a final um, crystallization of butterfat and ice crystals that happens when we harden our ice cream overnight. There is a second step in the process called curing, which is one of the most overlooked steps in home ice cream making. It's almost never included in recipes. It does remove the instant gratification factor from ice cream. If that's what your goal is for the day, by all means, cool your ice cream down, put it in your machine and churn it. But when, as a professional, we learn to let our ice cream bases sit in the fridge overnight. And this, really, this step really helps the texture of ice cream knit itself together. Um, I'll spare you all the boring details if you're interested. They are in the book. But one of the easiest and most distinct steps that you can take as a home ice cream maker is to cure your ice cream base. And it is the easiest step you can take because it just means putting it in your fridge and walking away for a very minimum of four hours, but I recommend overnight. Flavors mingle. The sugars continue to grab onto water. Um, sugar has the unique ability of binding with water. And when it does that, um, it depresses the freezing point of the water. So while it will freeze solid at some point, uh, it will not freeze solid at the temperature that our freezers are at. And that's what keeps ice cream soft, um, is that some of the sugar has bound, or all of the sugar has bound with some of the water, and it keeps it liquid at a frozen temperature. Um, again, otherwise we would have a popsicle, <laughs> which is not an altogether bad thing. But even in a popsicle, there's still some liquid sugar. Oh, curing, yes. So just set it and forget it. Um, I wrote the recipes to fold up like an accordion. If you, if you read through the recipes in the ice cream section, there, will, there are a few optional steps. Um, you, if you strain your ice cream base through a fine mesh strainer, you will get a smoother ice cream, but you don't have to. Um, if you cure your ice cream base overnight, you will get a better texture, but you don't have to. And if you harden your ice cream overnight, um, you will get American hard pack ice cream, which is what the recipes are designed for. But if you want to eat it right away, go ahead. Uh, so if you unfold the recipe, it'll take you two days. Um, but, and if you are going for wonderfully textured ice cream, that's like, that's sort of the ideal. But by all means, I know that ice cream at home is about just satisfying yourself and there's really no wrong way to make ice cream at home. So I think the, the only important thing is that you do make ice cream within the limitations and your desires of your home kitchen. And my biggest point in giving all of the information that I had was not to tell people there's one right way to make ice cream and if you don't do it my way, like you might as well not make ice cream. It was to give everybody enough information so they could make ice cream any way they wanted. Um, I think the most important thing is that we just make ice cream. And the only sad thing that would happen to me if I put too much information in the book is that it would scare people off from making ice cream in the first place because the only wrong thing is not making it. <laughs> um, there's a whole section on color in ice cream. When I was at the Fat Duck, um, which is a restaurant in England, um, it has three Michelin stars and sat at the top of the list as the number one restaurant in the world for a little while. Um, I went as a 25-year-old with 
wide eyes and discovered A, science exists in food. B, we use all five of our senses when we eat. Who knew? Um, C, that the diner comes in with a preset notion about food and food memories. No matter what we put on the plate in front of them, it's going to become something different inside everybody's head. And that is the goal. It's not the food we put on the plate. It's the memory they carry with them when they leave. Believe it or not, it was that that inspired me to dive so deep into ice cream. Um, I spent a lot of years putting desserts on tables in front of a lot of very wonderful people um, in a lot of very high-end restaurants. And there was a disconnect for me because I certainly, I came from a very working class family. While the people who I was serving desserts to were lovely, um, they came from a very specific socioeconomic background. So I wanted to know how I could find a way to create a memory for everybody. And ice cream became that thing for me because it is an affordable luxury. Um, it is something everybody loves. There's not a single person who doesn't have an opinion about ice cream. Um, I live in Pilsen. They love their ice cream there. Uh, I've been to Copenhagen. They love their ice cream there. Uh, so it became a way that I could share a memory with everybody I met. While I was at the Fat Duck, one of the things that one of the courses that went out, so this is a molecular gastronomy restaurant in 2005, which is sort of the onset of molecular gastronomy restaurants, which are, um, if anybody's unfamiliar with that term, uh, it's not a term that anybody in a molecular gastronomy restaurant ever calls themselves. And <laughs> they were restaurants that used scientific information to build very creative cuisine. Um, sometimes things were like parlor tricks. Um, sometimes at the Fat Duck there was a a tea that was both hot and cold at the same time that played with viscosity. Two different viscosifying agents became the same texture at different, at complete opposite temp temperatures. Um, and then another one of the dishes was a little disc of jello. Half of it was red and half of it was orange. And when it was given to you, you were told that they were the flavor of beet and oranges. And you ate it and you got very confused because the red side was blood orange and the yellow side was golden beet. But in my head, beets are red and oranges are orange. <laughs> what that little parlor trick of a course was meant to show you is that we use our eyes to eat and the information we gather from our eyes is so powerful that it will override the information we receive from our tongue and from our nose. It is the greatest predictor of flavor. And we did this in elementary school. I don't know if anybody else did or if anybody has done it as an adult with wine, but we would blindfold each other and then we would drink Coca-Cola and we'd drink 7-Up. And most of us couldn't tell the difference without color. Probably speaks a little bit more to the um, quality of product in the sodas. <laughs> but even with red and white wine, sommeliers are fooled as well. And if you don't believe it, go home, cover your eyes, and sip each of these different colored beverages. And while you may be able to detect it in the end, it's not as apparent as you would think. So after recipe testing this book um, with a wonderful woman named Jane, 
She came into my home for four months and made these recipes over and over and over and over um, until they created the right textures and results. Um, we were staring at an awful lot of white scoops. The coffee ice cream was the same color as the mint ice cream, which was the same color as the donut ice cream, which was the same color as the basil ice cream. But none of these flavors are even remotely similar. So yes, you can add food coloring to ice cream. Um, that's fine. No judgment here. Uh, but as a pastry chef, throughout the years, I have gathered information and different ingredients that can also act to tint your ice creams uh, that come from very direct food sources that you can find in the grocery store. So uh, for pink, we used beet juice. And for yellow, we used um, turmeric. My editor really wanted me to put curry powder as the reference point for the color, and I refused because to me it's yellow mustard. And he argued that yellow mustard wasn't appetizing when you thought about it with ice cream. And I said, well, neither is curry. <laughs> to which he said, yes, it is. <laughs> yellow mustard is colored by turmeric. And then the orange, it comes from annatto, which is a seed that is used to color cheddar cheese. Um, white cheddar is not a special kind of cheddar with the color removed. Um, the yellow cheddar that we know and love is a special kind of cheddar with color added, and it comes from annatto. Um, you can find that in Mexican grocery stores, either as annatto seed or achiote powder, which is even easier to use. Um, and then the green was easy, with spirulina. The purple, there were multiple choices for purple, mostly berries. Um, you just a little bit of these uh, ingredients will tint your ice creams without changing the flavor. Then we did brown, so you could tint your star anise ice cream with a teeny tiny bit of cocoa powder. Um, it's not going to flavor it, but it's going to give it just enough of a tan hue that you know it's a spice. I have some friends who um, really like to follow health trends, so activated charcoal became part of our conversation. I'm still not sure what it does. I think it's in Pepto-Bismol. I'm not sure why my friend uses it to brush her teeth right now, but <laughs> uh, either way, I found a lovely source of making black and gray ice creams, um, which has sparked a lot of conversation. Why would you want to make black or gray ice cream? And the, I don't know, but I just like that I could. <laughs> black licorice was one of the uh, flavors that came up, but sometimes it's just fun. And blue, blue was really missing from this whole scenario. And then I joined my very health conscious friend uh, in a trip to the Real Good Juice Bar in Old Town. And they had a Robin's Egg Blue almond milk beverage. And I asked him how they did it. And there's actually another kind of spirulina uh, called Blue Magic, spelled with, I don't know, a J and a K or something. Uh, it's made by one company. It's proprietary. Um, I ordered some from the internet. It stinks 10 times worse than regular spirulina, but uh, the tiniest little bit of it will tint your ice cream blue. I get a lot of questions from people in the Midwest. I grew up in Seattle, uh, so this flavor was not part of my childhood, but apparently there's a flavor called Blue Moon. I don't know what flavor it is. Nobody else does either. They just know it's blue, and it's good. Um, so... <laughs> 
people have been very excited that the uh, this um, processed spirulina, this robin's egg blue spirulina can make blue magic ice cream. I was excited because uh, in Italy, the children's flavor is called pufalo, which is the name for Smurf. Uh, and it's, the, it's this blue color. So I was just really excited that I could make pufalo ice cream. <laughs> um, and then I've had friends get very excited that they could make a true rainbow sherbet. Um, but I just think it's a lot of fun and it certainly does make the scoops pretty to look at. So there's an entire color wheel uh, with options for tinting your ice creams to either match flavor or match your mood or match your party's theme, whatever you want. Oh, there's a, yes, one of the most common questions I get is what kind of ice cream maker should I buy? And I've also gotten a lot of questions, um, which is how do I make ice cream without an ice cream maker? And my answer is, please don't. There are, I have seen all of the hacks um, there are, you can put a Ziploc bag inside a bigger Ziploc bag with ice and salt and shake it up. Um, you can whip cream and fold it into sweetened condensed milk. Um, but if you use one of those hacks, your ice cream is always going to taste like a hack. Um, and it, it may have its place. Like, I wouldn't judge anybody for following any of them, but... If you're going to take the time to purchase a book and read about science and tint your ice cream pufalo colored, um, it seems like the investment in the ice cream maker is the least of your commitment. <laughs> it's also, at this point, one of the lower cost appliances you can bring into your kitchen. And if you look on Craigslist throughout the summer, or even the winter, uh, I think you will find plenty of ice cream makers that people have abandoned um, after their own ice cream making ambitions waned. <laughs> or as somebody in a, a recent lecture said, all the, all the her friends who registered for ice cream makers for their wedding and then never made ice cream. So those are available as well. I literally purchased every ice cream maker I could get from Amazon and used all of them in testing. Um, so lots of my friends have received um, barely used ice cream makers as gifts this year. <laughs> Mostly because when I made recommendations, I wanted to make sure that I understood what was available um, and what the advantages and disadvantages were because I'm never gonna tell you not to buy something. Um, you need to make a purchase that's comfortable for you. And every single one of the ice cream makers on the market is going to make ice cream. So it's really, there's no losing in this situation. Um, but I do have some that I favor for certain reasons because they give you different advantages. Most old-fashioned ones work with salt and ice. And all of the ice cream makers work on the exact same set of physics. Uh, it's Ice cream is put in a canister. It freezes on the exterior where the ice cream comes in contact with the colder canister. A beater shaves the frozen ice cream off of the sides as it freezes, which both um, whips air into it and breaks the ice that's forming back down and stirs it into the ice cream. So you start, start to get this like ice slushy that builds and builds and builds. Um, the only difference between the machines is how they cool. So the old fashioned ones work on the magic that happens when salt and ice come into contact with each other, um, which I'm, about 80% sure I understand. <laughs> a 
lower cost home models function by filling a thick walled canister with some sort of goo or liquid that when you freeze it will stay, will freeze below the temperature of water and stay frozen. Um, and then the more expensive models work with a compressor. And the more money you spend on your compressor machine, the better the compressor is going to be. So some people ask me about the $2,000 to $3,000 models. And yes, they will make better ice cream. But um, I'm also the girl who ran a restaurant on three countertop Cuisinarts. So uh, if, you are, if you love texture and you have the means, um, you will get better ice cream out of that. And any of the compressor models will make, any of the lower cost models with compressors, will make ice cream of about the same quality as the stuff you get from the frozen canister. And the advantage to them is that you can make ice cream at a moment's notice. Um, with the canisters, you have to freeze them for 24 hours ahead of time, which really takes away all impulse. <laughs> um, and oftentimes when I'm cooking at home, it's what do I wanna do this Sunday? It's like, well shoot, I wanna make some ice cream. <laughs> Uh, I guess I better freeze my bowl and wait till tomorrow. The second thing the compressor models um, offer as an advantage is you can churn more than one batch a day. With the models that you freeze the canister, you have one shot. Um, it works once a day. You have to refreeze it for another 24 hours. Um, I beat that system by buying an extra bowl. Uh, I actually have six of them in, I just moved, and um, I have six of them in my cupboard, and I don't know why. They need to find people with Cuisinart makers. <laughs> All of that is outlined in the book. There's also one of my f um, favorite ice cream makers is the bowl, the frozen bowl that comes with a KitchenAid mixer or that you can buy as an attachment for a KitchenAid mixer. And um, when I tested, most of the home models that I tested were the kind where you freeze the bowl. Uh, and the only real difference in them was how thick the walls of the bowl were. If they were too thin, um, they didn't have enough cooling power and your ice cream would start to melt before it fully churned. Second thing was the paddles were really cheap, so they didn't scrape very well. Um, so the Cuisinart models had the thickest bowls and the strongest paddles, um, which is why I think they're the best bang for your buck. And the KitchenAid model had the same two qualities. Uh, it does require that you own a KitchenAid mixer, which is a much more expensive investment, but it's the only one that allowed you to change the speed on the dasher that turns. And the speed at which the dasher turns is directly what adds the air to your ice cream. So professionally, we call it overrun. Um, unprofessionally, we call it fluff. So it's basically the kitchen aid model is the only one that allows you to fluff your ice cream up a little more. Uh, home ice cream makers make very, very dense ice cream, which if anybody's been to Jenny's Splendid Ice Creams, we know dense, chewy ice creams are very delicious. Um, if you go to a grocery store and you hold a pint of Haagen-Dazs in one hand and a pint of the cheapest ice cream you can find in the other, you will find out why the cheap ice cream is so cheap. It will weigh about half as much as the more expensive ice cream because it's so pumped full of air uh, and air is the cheapest ingredient that we add. At Ice Cream College, I changed my tune from air is free to air is the cheapest ingredient we add because uh, manufacturers actually spend quite a bit of money on air filters to make sure that the air that's pumped into their ice cream is 
uh, food safe. So it is the cheapest ingredient that we add. <laughs> Probably going to need an ice cream maker if you want to make ice cream. That's the moral of that story. But once you have one, sky's the limit. Uh, she asked if it's really important if you cool the ice cream base before you churn. 100%. Uh, yes, uh, she asked the fact that gelato is not frozen hard like American hard pack ice cream. Is that what gives it its mouthfeel? Yes. Um, there are other factors. Uh, it, it is churned with much, much less air, uh, and it is lower fat because it has less air in it. It feels creamier on our tongue, but because it is um, never frozen solid, yes, that's what gives it its very distinct mouthfeel. And just to touch back on, do you need to cool your ice cream base before you put it in your ice cream maker? Um, 100%. I think one of the most common mistakes that my friends who cook at home have made with ice cream and something I did too when I was in um, an earlier phase of my ice cream making was I thought, well, the ice cream maker is going to cool the ice cream. Why do I need to cool it first? Can I just dump it in there? But once you start churning, you are starting a chain reaction um, that does multiple things. Uh, one of them is it starts to add air, it starts to break down the butter fat, and it starts to create the ice. So if you are breaking down the butter fat before the ice cream base is cool, rather than partially coalescing and trapping air, it is going to start making butter. Um, the second thing that's going to happen is your ice cream base, especially if you use one of the models where you freeze the bucket, is going to melt the ice, melt the coolant before it starts churning into ice cream. Um, and the third thing that's really important is to get the best textured ice cream, you need to churn it as fast as possible, as cold as possible. Um, and this is where home cooks are at a mechanical disadvantage. Um, there's no way we can make ice cream at home with the efficiency that professionals make it. Um, in my kitchen, I have a machine that makes uh, a gallon of ice cream in six minutes because it's a very, very strong compressor. Um, when I have worked in ice cream shops, we have the same machines that work in the same time frame and make five gallons at a time. So you can imagine how cold it is. So you can imagine how cold it is inside those machines if they can turn five gallons of ice cream into ice cream in six minutes. Um, so at home, our ice cream makers take about half an hour to do the same thing. And if you don't put very, very cold ice cream base into those machines, um, the texture is just, it's going to fall apart. Where the best ice cream is sold in Chicago, as in like scoop shops, where do you buy the best ice cream in Chicago? Uh, well, I say you make it. <laughs> so the, the fine European chocolates, there is no cocoa grown in those regions. Um, so she's asking, there are a lot of single origin chocolates now that uh, we can purchase directly from the producers. I have never had any made to any specifications of mine. Um, I love to eat chocolate, but there is so much chocolate on the market um, I'm still working my way through what people have been making to their own specifications. Um, but yes, single origin bars, um, if you can find them direct from somebody who's making them in the region where they're grown, uh, they are phenomenal. And with the chocolate ice cream, um, if you just use all chocolate, all of one chocolate, uh, it's going to come through in a very spectacular way. Well, I figured out very quick, so she's asking why the Paco Jet took me 10 years to figure out. I actually figured that out, that part out very quickly. 
Um, so because the base is shaved after it's frozen, if you have too much fat in there, um, it will turn it into frozen butter. So you have to use a very low-fat ice cream. And because it's not hardened but consumed right after it's softened, you have to augment the sugar and reduce that to a very low point so that it is the correct texture when soft, not the correct texture when hard. These recipes will not work in that machine, no. I, you make American hard pack ice cream without using that machine. That machine has a place, and it's in fine dining restaurants um, with very uh, small footprints. It's a very small machine. It makes a very specific texture that is very popular in um, composed desserts because it eats very well with other textures. Uh, he asked why Chicago doesn't have as strong of an ice cream culture as other cities and why, and I don't know why, but um, no, there's not, no real equivalent to some of the more creative ice cream shops that are popping up on the West Coast and the East Coast, and um, as somebody who is going to open an ice cream shop at some point, what I hear most is, yeah, well, you can't sell ice cream in the winter. Nobody's going to buy ice cream in the winter. Who here would buy ice cream in the winter? <laughs> so I don't know. I don't know what they're talking about. So uh, they, can, they can not sell ice cream in the winter, and I'll sell ice cream in the winter. <laughs> Simple. Um, mm -hmm. So this is going to be a two-part answer. Um, the first question was about uh, the different sugars that the book talks about, and the second one is about um, ingredients that work to create texture that we call texture agents. Uh, so there are lots of different sugars in the book, um, mostly because uh, ice cream is a combination of monosaccharides and disaccharides that both bind water. Um, one binds twice as much water, the monosaccharide, and the other one is a disaccharide. Um, sugar is a disaccharide. It's a glucose molecule with a hydrogen bond that attaches it to a fructose molecule. And glucose is less sweet than sugar. There is a table of relative sweetness in the book uh, that puts table sugar at 100. Um, fructose is much sweeter than sucrose. So if you've ever tasted honey or agave syrup, which are made mostly of fructose, you will find they taste sweeter. And they also bind with a little bit more water. So we use a combination of glucose syrup, which you can find at Michael's or from Amazon, um, and sucrose to both create the right softness in the ice cream and to balance the sweetness. And there are alternatives to buying glucose in the book. You can make your own inverted sugar syrup by boiling sugar and water with an acid, which will break the hydrogen bond between the two um, molecules, creating a bunch of monosaccharides. You can buy corn syrup, which is glucose that's been sweetened with high fructose corn syrup so that it is uh, as sweet, if not sweeter, than table, um, table sugar. And then... Those are really the three main sh uh, sugars that we use. And if, once you go through the knowledge section, you'll find out why sugar is so crucial to the texture of ice cream and why um, if you do anything to your recipes, please do not remove the sugar. <laughs> it's, uh, or if you do, just understand that your texture is going to start to get very hard and chalky and it's gonna lose a lot of its uh, creaminess and softness. Um, and the second question was about emulsifiers and stabilizers. And there is a, this is definitely something that's been missing from uh, the information that's given to home cooks, um, which is how to stabilize your ice cream. Um, in my experience, stabilizer has 
a pretty bad connotation these days. Um, it seems to embody artificial ingredients put into otherwise healthy food by manufacturers to extend shelf life and profitability uh, at the cost of our health, which does sound like something I don't want to eat. But um, this entire section sort of sheds light on what a stabilizer does, why it's called a stabilizer. Um, stabilizers are simply ingredients that work to hold the ice in place. Um, who here has eaten icy ice cream? Yeah, I think we all have. Um, it would be easy to think that icy ice cream has more ice in it than smooth creamy ice cream, but they probably have exactly the same amount of water, um, which is why you can have a really smooth ice cream one day and come back to it a week later in your freezer and it can be icy. Uh, it's all about the size of the ice crystal. Um, as ice cream goes through the freeze-thaw cycle, which happens every single day in our freezers at home, um, every time we go into them, the freezer fluctuates in temperature. Every time it goes through a defrost cycle, it fluctuates in temperature. Every time someone looks for a frozen burrito or decides they didn't want it in the first place or goes back for it, or somebody argues over like what's in there, or you just stare in there for no reason whatsoever, because I've, I've done that too. Or you put hot soup in there because you want to eat it in a week. Um, our home freezers are not very stable in temperature. And every time they fluctuate, the ice melts a little bit. And then when it gets cold again, it refreezes. And ice or water has a polar quality, which means it attracts itself. So um, if you melt down tiny ice crystals, they will all pool together as water and then they will refreeze as a much larger ice crystal. And as this happens up and down throughout the time period that our ice cream spends in our freezer at home, it's called ice crystal enlargement. Um, a stabilizer is any ingredient that binds with the water so that when the temperature fluctuates and the water melts, it can't join forces with other water molecules and it, it has no choice but to refreeze as the same size ice crystal it melted out from. Um, so some of the original stabilizer for ice cream was gelatin. Um, it lost out in popularity uh, to much lower cost plant-based items. Um, sadly, it wasn't because we have vegetarian friends. <laughs> it was entirely about money, which most manufacturing choices are. Um, but there are a myriad of ingredients that can act to stabilize your ice cream or stabilize the water in your ice cream. Um, everything from tapioca starch and cornstarch um, to uh, some of the plant-based gums that um, you'll see on the back of packages. This book sort of just goes through what each of they, them are, where they come from, and how to use it. So locust bean gum, for example, um, sounds like the source of a biblical plague. Um, it is the seed of the carob plant. So if you go to your local co-op and buy carob chips and put them in your oatmeal cookies, you are a very healthy hippie. But if you take the, the powder that comes from grinding the endosperm of the seed um, and you put it in your ice cream, you are a big, scary stabilizer lady. So <laughs> there's sort of a disconnect in stigma attached to both of those things. Um, then there are commercial blends which include stabilizers and emulsifiers. And an emulsifier is something that holds water and fat together in place. 
why would you need to do that? Well, water and oil don't mix, do they? But our milk is full of butter fat and water, so our ice cream is full of butter fat and more water. And an emulsifier helps keep both of those things in suspension so that when you churn your ice cream, it's very smooth and creamy. Again, to shed some light on some of the things that help emulsify our ice cream bases, the milk protein will help do that in the first place. Then there are other ingredients we can add, like egg yolks, um, which is why French-style custard ice creams are so smooth, is because they have the uh, lecithin from the egg yolks, which helps emulsify the ice cream base. Then she mentioned polysorbate 80, um, which is, let's be honest, it's a big, scary stabilizer. <laughs> that is a completely manufactured, processed ingredient that I did purchase and I did use or tested with to uh, when I was writing this book, and um, I don't recommend it. If you you will find it in very sparing qualities in uh, quantities in commercial stabilizers. Um, it's extremely efficient. It's often used for soap making as well, which is another um, fat and water emulsion. I it blew my mind when I found out soap had fat in it. Yep, so there's an entire section, I call them agents of texture, or texture agents, which just are ingredients that help to stabilize and create the texture of our ice cream. And hopefully, you can make ice cream without any of these added ingredients. That is 100% okay. You've probably been doing it for years. Um, but you can also read about them, understand what they do, and decide whether or not you want to employ one of them. Um, pectin makes a great stabilizer. If you do employ any texture agent, I, I really do encourage you to try to stabilize the water in your ice cream base at home because 100% every single ice cream maker I've met has asked why is my ice cream at home so icy? And it's because there's nothing in there to hold the water in place. And our home freezers are terrible. Yep, that's the magic of Google these days is uh, we can find almost anything we want, which is why we don't have to um, write source sections in cookbooks anymore. Uh, she's asking about the shops that make ice cream instantly with liquid nitrogen. Um, they make, it's very interesting, uh, it makes a very delicious ice cream product. Um, they use liquid nitrogen, which is extremely cold, and paddle it with liquid ice cream base, and 90 seconds later, you have ice cream. Um, it has, it's almost like frozen pudding. It has no perceivable ice crystals in it because the ice is frozen so fast. Um, my favorite version of the shop is called Smitten Ice Cream, and it's a, a woman about the same age as me who worked for years with a retired NASA aerospace engineer, and they have, I think, five patents on their machine. Everything from the way the paddles feel the viscosity of the ice cream and control the churning to how, like, the downward trajectory of it against the walls. and <laughs> It's extremely interesting, um, and it's also very delicious. So I think it's a, a super fun thing. We will most likely never do at home. Um, but there are always those science experiments for elementary school kids where they use dry ice to make ice cream, um, which you can Google as well. Yeah. Uh, the question is about the material that the ice cream machines are made with. Unfortunately, I, I don't. I don't know any sources for stainless steel versus aluminum. Sorry, I don't have that answer. Uh, the question is if different states have different regulations on ice cream. And no, they're, um, they're defined by the USDA, so they're national. Um, but the question really is why does Pennsylvania's ice cream taste better? <laughs> that probably has more to do with the dairy that's produced in the region. 
in Chicago, we used to have hundreds and hundreds of dairies within the city limits. Um, over the last 50 years, everything has moved up to Wisconsin. So Chicago gets most of its dairy from Wisconsin at this point, um, which is delicious and baffles me why there isn't more ice cream made here with that delicious milk. But yep, I would just say it's probably the cows. What kind of milk do I like to use? Um, I like to use homogenized milk. That's really my only recommendation um, as far as the f different brands that are available to you. Um, you can buy anything that you're comfortable with at the grocery store. It will be homogenized. Um, cream line milk, I don't like to make ice cream with. Um, that is milk that comes from a farmstead that um, has not been homogenized. And part of what makes the texture of ice cream so smooth and even is the size of the butter fat. Um, and the cream line milk will make buttery ice cream. Uh, the book addresses it and talks about how you can sort of hack a homogenizer at home and you can break up the butter a little bit. You just have to warm it up and then spin it in a blender. Um, but if you, if you do that, just be aware you might have a little texture to your ice cream from the size of the butter fat, but uh, you will be trading off for a more distinct flavor. So I honestly, I just buy regular old milk. That, that was creamy, delicious, so thank you. Could you tell us, you have chocolate and the other flavor is vanilla, is that, no, what's the other flavor? Uh, yep, so I brought the blue ribbon chocolate that I talked about, and then we also brought one of our frozen yogurt flavors, which is mango lassi. And, and enjoy, thank you. 